0: talk about is really the intersection of several different fields, some of which uh, I have some expertise in, some of which I am more of a you know, a fellow layman or laywoman with the rest of you. So when I'm talking about astronomy and chemistry, uh, I'm typically talking about things that I feel pretty confident that I'm telling you the correct thing. When I'm veering into theology, um, I'm trying to stay orthodox, and I know we have at least a few theologians in the room who can intervene if I stray into heresy. So here's my invitation to do so if if that is needed. Uh, Because I do really want to go a bit bit back and forth between at least four different fields. So astronomy and chemistry, so two actually quite different science fields on the one hand, and then philosophy and theology uh, on, on the other. And think about how some of the most exciting Uh, both recent uh, scientific discoveries and perhaps future, possible future scientific discoveries, how they have a certain interplay with philosophy and with uh, theology. So my own uh, starting point um, when thinking about, like the reason that I uh, pursue the science I do, is, is twofold. One is to try to understand our own origins. Uh, So this is uh, a picture that's taken from a space mission, looking back, uh, it was orbiting Saturn, looking back towards Earth. So you can see Earth here looking through uh, Saturn's rings. And one of the things that uh, drives me is trying to understand where all this comes from, including this beautiful tiny little planet that we live on, which is, as far as As far as we know right now, it's the only living planet that we know of. But the other motivation is the one that's in the title of the talk, which is that we now know that planets around other stars are incredibly common. Uh, When you look up uh, at the sky, you you think you're looking at stars, but really you're looking at solar systems. Uh, That uh, as far as we can tell, pretty much every star has at least one planet around it, and most of them have, have many. Uh, A very, how do we know this? Uh, There are two uh, ways that astronomers use to find planets around other stars. We can't use the way that's the most obvious one, which is just to look for them. I mean, if you look for planets in the solar system, you turn your eyes or binoculars or telescope towards the planet and you see it, and that's how you know that the planet is there. But when you're looking for planets around around other stars, The planets are so faint compared to the star, that it's actually very difficult to just take a picture of the planet. So instead, astronomers have come up with two tricks, uh, one of which uh, got the Nobel Prize uh, very recently. So the first trick, in some sense, the simplest one conceptually, uh, is the one that's on the left uh, left side here, uh, the so-called transit method. So with a transit method, you just take advantage of the fact that when you have a star, so if my fist is a star, and a planet passes in front of it, that planet will cast a bit of a shadow. So you will see a dip in the light coming from the star. And if you see that periodically, you can conclude that there is a planet that's orbiting uh, the star. The other way that astronomers find planets around stars is by looking at how stars wobble. So you might think that in our solar system, we are orbiting the sun, uh, but you would be mistaken. We are not orbiting the sun. Both the sun and the earth are orbiting one another. It's just that we're orbiting, the way we're orbiting one another is very close to the center of mass or center of gravity, which is basically at the surface uh, of the sun. So we're, but the sun is also orbiting the same uh, point in space that we are. And that's true for exoplanetary systems as well, which means that sometimes a star that has a planet in front of it, sometimes it's coming towards you, and sometimes it's going away from you. When uh, a star emits light and it's coming towards you, that light is bluer. When it's going away from you, it's redder. And we can see that wobble in the light and use that to detect planets. So as I already said, this has been used to uh, see that there are, uh, we have detected thousands of planets around other stars using these two methods. And we have not actually looked at that many stars. So based on the statistics, we can then conclude that it's not just that there are thousands of planets out there, but there are hundreds of billions in our galaxy alone. And there's no reason to think that our galaxy is special and there's, you know, maybe hundreds of billions of galaxies in the visible universe. So there's a lot of planets out there. Uh, so in one sense, that makes us maybe a little bit less special. Uh, but one of the things that we have also discovered when we look at these planets, look, using these methods, is that the planetary systems we find are quite different from what we had expected just looking at the solar system. So this is an artist's impression of an exoplanetary system on top and then the solar system at the bottom. Many things here are not to scale, but the one thing that is to scale Uh, is the size of the planets. So in our solar system, we have these four small planets, and then we have two really big ones and two kind of big ones. When we look at extrasolar planets, uh, the most common planets we find is something in between, which you can see if you look in the upper part of this slide. Uh, When we try to put numbers on that, you can try to sort of make bins for how big planets are and how many you find. Uh, those spins look something like this. So, if we start from uh, the left hand side, uh, what you see is the smallest planets, and then it goes up in sort of size spins all the way up to Jupiter, and um, even bigger than Jupiter sized planets. And you see the solar system, where the solar system planets would, would fall in these spins on top. So, again, in the solar system, we have the small planets, and then we have this big jump, and then we have the bigger, bigger planets. But most of the exoplanets we're finding are this in-between size. Now, there probably are more smaller planets around. Uh, maybe it's intuitive to you without me saying it, that it's easier to find big planets than smaller planets. Um, a bigger planet makes a star wobble more. It casts a bigger shadow. Uh, so whatever method you use, you are going to be somewhat biased towards this side of the diagram. But this, this, the amount of planets we see in this mid-size, that is not the bias, that's real. So we can already tell that there's something interesting going on with how the universe is put together. On the one hand, I think astronomers were a little bit surprised just how common planets were. I mean, I think everyone thought there were going to be planets out there. There was no reason that we were going to be the only place where there were planets. But just how common and how abundant they are was not at all clear until we actually started looking for them. But I think the other thing that astronomers and planetary scientists would have guessed is that the planets we would find that we would be quite representative, that our solar system was sort of a typical system out there. And that is becoming very clear that that's not the case. Uh, So on one hand, maybe a little bit less special on that hand, a little bit more dependent on how, how you look at it. And that brings me to a uh, first, I guess, theological checkpoint. Uh, how do we think about these new kind of discoveries that's revealing new aspects of the universe in light of what we already know about creation? Uh, is it ever something that sort of rubs up against sort of the theology uh, of creation? Um, I would suggest that it is not. Uh, First of all, in principle, it really can't. I mean, already when uh, I mean, it's a long tradition both in Christian and Jewish commentary and understanding of the Bible uh, to to see uh, both the book of nature and the book of creation as two eyes leading uh, leading to the same truth that have the same same origin, and therefore that when you find uh, reveal like re- when new truths are revealed in the book of nature. Uh, that is something that at worst is neutral uh, for your understanding uh, of creation from a theological point of view, but quite often can help to guide you and give new images for what creation is like. And one of the things that I think the discovery of exoplanets just uh, reveals, points to, is an example of, is what often happened, or that like has especially in the past hundred years when we have turned our telescopes outward. On the one hand, I think we find these regularities that really points to laws of nature that are stable and that underpin a creation as we understand it. And there is, uh, I think there's sometimes there's a bit of a feeling that, well, if this is all explained by laws of nature, don't you take away the mysterious, the miraculous, the direct intervention of God into his creation and therefore sort of diminish the role uh, of God? And to that, I would say, again, there's a long, uh, long tradition uh, within our faith of that the miracles reveal God, but so do the loss. Uh, and they reveal different sides, different aspects of who God is and what their relationship is with him. And I mean, this is something that comes forth in some of the Psalms. Uh, one of the more famous ones being the beginning of Psalm 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the work of his hands. Day unto day pours forth uh, speech, which I see as, I guess, law law of nature. Uh, Night unto night whispers knowledge. And I think that is true in general when we make these scientific advances, that we are uncovering more and more of the law and therefore hopefully get some more insight into the mind of the creator. I think there's something that's a bit more specific, especially about the scientific discoveries of the past 100, maybe 200 years, which is that they seem to uh, both reveal more and more, like increase our understanding of nature as sort of law-bound in some sense. But it also seems like these laws always produce something unexpected, uh, that points to God who is as much a lawgiver as he is an artist. And I think when we think about exoplanets, when we see, again, that we, like everyone else, have this planetary systems around uh, around them that points towards a regularity, a law, just of how stars and planets form. But then we get this surprise that all the planets look kind of different, and we have yet to find a true twin to the solar system. that just reveals maybe why uh, God likes having a creation that is law-bound, but with laws such as um, the cre- creation can really take part in a very integrated way in its creation in new and unexpected ways. And I see that some analogy between that and uh, how God is uh, giving us our free will to take part in our own uh, making, uh, There seems he has given something analogous to nature as well. I mean, not in sense of consciousness or will, but in the sense that uh, nature gets to be part in the development of, the, of nature in the future, that is quite beautiful and these told these unexpected and very creative structures. Uh, all that being said, I think the main reason that uh, both astronomers and laypeople are really excited about exoplanets has maybe less to do with what they reveal about creation in their own right and more to do what might be on them. More to do with the possibility of there being extraterrestrial life. And that's where I wanna spend most of the rest of the talk talking about how we think about this from a scientific point of view. And I can't tell you how long it took me to find these images with the right color scheme. Uh, These are not from the same website. These are after like 10 hours of detailed internet research, finding the the perfect ones. So thinking about what is the possibility from a scientific point of view of there being extraterrestrial life, how can we start thinking about probabilities there? Uh, How would we go about going from these probabilities to actually checking whether there there is life? I do wanna say from the outset that as far as I know, there's no evidence for extraterrestrial life. So what we're gonna be talking about now is gonna be science, but it's gonna be speculative. Uh, science, so what what the conclusions are of the data that I am showing you. That also, so that means that we do not know, at this point in history, we do not know if there is life outside of Earth, and anyone who's trying to use the obvious existence of life outside of Earth is wrong, both scientifically and theologically, and I think, I hope that's going to be one of the conclusions that we get to. But the reason that I made this, very carefully made this slide, is that I do want to talk about extraterrestrial life in three different categories. We're gonna spend most of our time on the first one, which is just life of any kind. And then we're mainly gonna think about life, as simple life as possible. So simplest kind of life that we have here on Earth, and even pushing back even further back into our deep history, how that life could have originated uh, in, in the, let's say four, four billion years ago, something like that. But then I do wanna talk a little bit about the possibility of animal extraterrestrials as well as what is probably the thing that our mind first go to, which are extraterrestrials that are somewhat like ourselves, that have a rational a rational soul. But let's start with what, how do we think about the likelihood of there being bacterial extraterrestrials? Well, one way is to go back and look at Earth and try to understand what it took for earth to become a living planet and there to to something even simpler than than bacteria to develop uh, here on earth. This is a cartoon version of the steps that we think about the early earth uh, going through uh, to to proceed from a dead to a living planet. Uh, So the earth formed around 4.7 billion years ago Uh, but it had a giant impact early on, uh, which formed the Earth plus Moon system. Uh, So it was only, let's say, 4.2 billion years ago where the Earth would have cooled down enough to have liquid water uh, on it and have something you can think about as a a planet hospitable uh, to life. Uh, We have evidence for life uh, around Between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years ago. So there's some somewhere in this window life came into existence uh, on Earth. And the steps we think then is at first you have a rather complex chemistry, which is labeled prebiotic chemistry, it just means pre-biology chemistry. Uh, These very complex molecules somehow combine uh, to form molecules that can contain and transmit information from one generation to another. Uh, RNA is uh, the proposed carrier, but you can think about something similar to RNA or DNA, it doesn't have to be exactly the same. Uh, This uh, very complex now inheritable chemistry somehow becomes incorporated into structures that are similar to cells, and we have what we can call uh, the first uh, first life. And then somewhere between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years ago, uh, life that is similar to us comes into existence. And that life is so efficient that if it were other kinds of life around, it wipes it out. And now all life here on Earth uh, has one common ancestor uh, from around this, this era. So if this is what happened on Earth, and you see, this was, I'm not just giving you this cartoon version uh, because I'm trying to give this talk to a broad audience, but there are many things here we don't understand we don't know how li- the origins of life here happen on Earth. Uh, doesn't mean it is not a good sort of well-posed scientific question, I think it is, but it's an unsolved uh, scientific question uh, that I'll come back to a little bit later, how one should think about that. But if we say, if we say that this is how life generally comes into existence, then what kind of planet... Uh, do we need to have a chance to have origins of life on it? That would be one way to start building up a probability of having extraterrestrial life. Well, the first thing is that you, you want to have a planet that is sitting at the right place uh, or at the right distance uh, from its star. Astronomers um, refer to this distance where a planet should be, if it's going to be habitable, as a habitable zone it is just set by temperature. And temperature on the planet is mainly set by the distance from the star. And the just right temperature for planets is the temperature within which, the temperature range within which water is liquid. So you want liquid water. Um, I am sure, I would be very disappointed if no one raises their hand at the end of the talk and asks, why does life have to be water-based? So I'm just gonna leave that there uh, and assume that you're gonna need water similar to what we needed here on Earth uh, for life uh, to originate. So the first question we can then ask, how many planets do you have that is sitting in this temperature range where you can have liquid uh, liquid water? And we are finding systems that have planets uh, in the right position the most famous one, and which has a Catholic connection, is the Trappist-1 uh, system. Unfortunately, named after the beer, not the order. Uh, but I think it's just providential that without knowing it, they gave it a nice Catholic name. Uh, so this is the, the planetary system that uh, that has been discovered that so far has the most habitable planets uh, around, around the star. So it has a total of seven planets, uh, but three of them are sitting in this just right uh, region where you can have liquid liquid water. And if you extrapolate uh, from the discoveries we have to all the exoplanets that were out there, uh, there could easily be uh, at least a few billion of these in our galaxy. So that's a lot of planets that have this most basic characteristic uh, available to them to uh, to have the possibility of an origin of life. But it doesn't, um, it doesn't matter that much if you're sitting at the right temperature to have liquid water if you don't have any water around in the first place. Uh, I mean, you could be a perfectly temperate planet sitting exactly where the Earth is, but you can't just take for granted that the water will somehow just rain down from heaven just because you happen to sit at the right temperature. So the next question we want to, to ask is, okay, of these billion potentially habitable planets, how often do they actually have water? Uh, Again, those that define the reason we were interested in them being temperate in the first place. Um, You could try to look for water in planets. One day we will. Uh, We don't have the capabilities to do that right now for Earth-like planets. So instead, the trick that we have been playing is thinking about not looking at mature planets like our own, uh, but to try to figure out what the environment is like where planets form. Uh, and to explain that to you, I'm going to have to give you a very brief introduction to star and planet formation. Uh, we will see if I can do it in less than a minute. So here we go. You might think that space between stars is empty because when you look up at the sky, it just looks like it's, you know, dark, black, no, nothing in between there. But if you had eyes that could see at infrared wavelengths or maybe even better at microwave wavelengths or radio wavelengths, you would see that there are actually tons of stuff uh, in between stars. And sometimes the gas and the dust that is normally just like uniformly spread out between stars is through clusters together to form cloud-like structures. So we call them clouds. And if these clouds uh, become dense, so you can imagine there are things like Supernova explosions that compresses things in space. So if these clouds become dense enough, they can start to collapse in on themselves. Uh, And when they do that, that's how a star forms. Like once that collapse begins, there's nothing to stop it except for the turning on, turning on of a star uh, at the center. Uh, So that's, now we have star formation. Now planet formation. Uh, these, These clouds always have a little bit of rotation or spin. Part of it is just because our galaxy uh, has some rotation to it. Part of it is just that these shock waves that travel through space will give clouds a little kick here and there. So there's always a little bit of spin. And when these clouds collapses, you have to preserve that angular momentum or spin. And if you put all of the angular momentum into the star, the star would rotate so fast that it blows up. So the way that nature solves this is by putting 99% of the mass into the star, but then it puts 1% in a big disk uh, around, around the star. So that's where old angular momentum is. And this 1% angular momentum preserving material is what goes into forming planets. So within these disks, again, of dust and gas, the dust will start to coagulate, Form bigger and bigger bodies. First, things like comets, and then things maybe like the moon, and then things uh, like the Earth and larger, larger planets. Now, we can turn our telescopes towards any of these uh, stages for star. And any, we can we see all these stages when we uh, look at nearby star-forming regions. Uh, and the place that is the easiest to observe are actually these clouds, this original material. Uh, And when we turn our telescopes there, one of the things we always see is water. Water is one of the most abundant and common molecules in the universe. Uh, It's not a rare species at all. And not only do we see it there, but we also uh, have good models uh, of what happens to the water during this process. And water is pretty sturdy. And we are pretty sure that if you have water at the beginning, you'll have water at the end. Uh, That the water will survive the formation of the star, it will survive the formation of the planet, and that you very frequently will end up with a water-rich planet. And even within our solar system, we can see traces of that. Uh, Water is really common in the outer solar system. Uh, the moons of Saturn and Jupiter have tons of water. Pluto has water, not technically a planet. We can also take that discussion if you want to. But solar system bodies in general are water rich and it's because they formed with access to a lot of water. So water is not gonna be a bottleneck, we think. But the other thing, we could, have a, we could have a planet that has water but still doesn't have any interest in chemistry. Because to have, get this complex prebiotic chemistry, you need some accessible organic molecules uh, around. And perhaps the organic molecule that's the most important to have on a planet is one that is very bad for you, which is hydrogen cyanide. This innocent, uh, little, little mole- innocent looking little molecule, uh, which for complex life forms such as yourself, uh, you should try to stay away from. But if you're trying to make life on a planet, it turns out to be a very important ingredient. If you have hydrogen cyanide, uh, you have a water-rich environment, you have some sort of sulfur-bearing molecules, and you have access to UV light, uh, you quite readily end up forming what we think about all the building blocks of the molecules of life. So we think about life here on Earth, we think about proteins, RNA, DNA, Cells, uh, different kinds of metabolism, like keto cycles, um, these all, as I said, form very readily when you have hydrogen cyanide as a part of your chemistry. So part of what we have been doing, and this is going to be the only slides that's showing some of our recent work, um, which actually was only published like a couple of weeks ago. So it is uh, still very new. Is trying to figure out of um, figure out when a planet formed in this disk of dust and gas, we already know it has access to water. Does it also have access to the kind of organic molecules that we think it needs? And the way that we uh, do that is that we use this beautiful telescope in the Atacama desert called ALMA, it operates at microwave lengths, same kind of microwaves that you use in your microwave oven. It's just that these are coming from stars many hundreds of light years away. And we can isolate microwaves uh, that are coming from specific molecules and figure out how those molecules are distributed in these planet-forming disks. So this is a gallery of some of the data that we gathered uh, with this telescope. So it's just showing like each of these disks is showing emission from a specific molecule towards a specific disk. This is really just to show you how beautiful the data is. Here's like some blow-ups that actually allow me to explain a little bit more of what we do. So this is showing uh, the distribution of five molecules towards a single planet-forming disk. And uh, first of all, you might notice that the HCN, hydrogen cyanide, is one of the molecules that we see that's very bright. Uh, The second thing you probably noticed is that these disks look different and dependent on which molecule that we're looking at. That depends that when a planet is forming, uh, it's gonna matter if it's close or far away from the star. It's gonna have a quite different kind of chemistry going on. Uh, And the final thing that was very exciting to us uh, is that we do see a lot of these like wiggles in it. And we can actually correlate some of those wiggles uh, with places in this disk where we know there are planets assembling uh, right now. Uh, so so this, is, um, this is work that uh, we're doing as sort of the cutting edge of science, but the bottom line for this talk is that there is hydrogen cyanide where planets are forming as well as other organic uh, molecules. And this means that when planets assemble in a, one of these disks, they will be assembling together with all these organic molecules and very likely have access to them as they cool down and become hospitable. So if I were to sort of summarize uh, what, we, what we know, uh, it is that there are many, many, many planets that have the basic conditions for hosp- uh, hospitality to life. Whether we're thinking about their temperature, their surfaces, their access to, to water, uh, as well as to organics when it's forming. Uh, but we don't know if any of the planets that have formed and are now mature planets are actually inhabited. That is, we don't know if all it takes is to have the right chemical preconditions to get to a planet that then ends up being a living one. And I think it's like interesting to actually take a step back and, and think about what would it mean if this was the case, if all you needed to get life on a planet was to just have these most basic chemical ingredients uh, available? Uh, because this might turn out to be the case. If that is the case, that would mean there is something very peculiar about the laws of chemistry that we do not know or like understand at this point. Um, In this kind of setting, I guess I could use the word directionality directionality, or even teleology to talk about it, but uh, that there is um, something in the laws of chemistry itself that pushes a system towards biology if the right sort of preconditions are there. This is not a way that I think most of my colleagues think about it, Um, but I think implicitly, if you are doing work on origins of life, you are assuming that something like that is going on. Uh, that sort of chemistry will automatically turn into biology if you just have roughly the right, right conditions around. But it might also be the case that this is not very common and it actually takes very specific and very peculiar sort of preconditions at the planet for, for life to originate. If that's the case, we are very unlikely to ever discover life elsewhere, even if it exists on a few, few other planets. Um, So to do this, to figure this out, we're going to have to actually look if there is life on other planets. Uh, This is something that we have done very little of so far. The only planet that has been looked at in any detail is Mars. Uh, And even there, we are just at the surface where we pretty much know there's not going to be any life because the UV uh, light from the sun is too harsh. Uh, And it's only with the current mission that there's gonna be some real digging going on and to see what's under the surface on Mars. But for most planets, and definitely for all planets around other stars, the way you would go about trying to find life is to look at the spectra uh, from those planets. So when there's life on the surface of of a planet, we expect uh, that uh, those living things to emit molecules into the atmosphere that then would absorb uh, light, that specific colors or wavelengths that we could detect remotely using telescopes. So that's the general idea. That there are things like oxygen, that if you have both oxygen and methane, uh, that's gonna be very difficult to explain if there's not life on the planet, for example. Um, If you see uh, a a sharp shift where, where um, you're at the spectrum where green, the color green is, uh, that, would be, that would potentially be a sign that you have vegetation uh, on, that, uh, on that planet. So there are ways to sort of remotely start getting clues about the planet, whether it has life or not. And a lot of astronomy in the next sort of 10, 20 years uh, is gonna be thinking about how to do this well and how to build the right telescopes to do that. There's another way to start doing it, and that's to focus more on the solar system. Uh, I already mentioned uh, Mars, uh, which is definitely a planet that we want to spend some more time on, especially going uh, digging deeper. But there are also uh, other bodies in the solar system that could have uh, life on them if all you need for life is liquid water and organics. And I'm especially thinking about the moons uh, around Saturn and Jupiter, some of which have subterranean oceans. Uh, My favorite one, uh, which is shown not to scale, it's much, much smaller than Mars, is Enceladus. Uh, Enceladus is, um, is a really nice target because not only does it have a subterranean ocean, but it's also sort of spewing out some of this water into space. So you wouldn't even have to drill down. You could just sort of fly by and collect it. And why we haven't done this uh, or don't have a mission right now planning to do this is completely beyond me. I mean, this would be one of the places you would wanna go to see how easy life, uh, how how easy it is for life to originate uh, uh, on a planet. But uh, let's assume uh, or like, let's, let's think uh, a little bit about what, what does it mean? Uh, what, what, wh- sh- why should we care what does it mean if there is uh, life in the universe? Remember, we're not yet at the rational or even animal life, but just any, any kind of life. I mean, on the one hand, um, it might not mean that much at all. Uh, there's nothing in Catholic belief or Catholic teaching or theology that would preclude there being uh, Martian bacterial extraterrestrials. Uh, Such Martian bacterial extraterrestrials are not mentioned, of course, in the Bible, but neither are terrestrial uh, bacteria. So I don't think this is something that we should use as a reason to exclude the possibility. Um, So I don't think there's any sort of negative, uh, possible negative impact. But I don't think that means that it doesn't uh, carry any meaning. Uh, I think if we find out that we live in a universe, uh, there's uh, really teeming with life that is telling us something about the kind of creation that we inhabit and by extension about its creator and uh, what kind of universe that he has put together for us. It is also possible that we are the only living Uh, living things, the only living planet in the universe, or at least we'll find out that we are extremely rare. Um, That is not what I hope we'll find out. Uh, But I do think that that too has a certain beauty to it. Uh, In this case, I mean, we would be the the Ark carrying all living things with us through time and space. And I think that puts an extra, um, that makes something that clarifies to us just how precious Uh, of a place that we inhabit, which we shouldn't need this to realize we do live in a precious place, but I think it does sort of bring that to the forefront. Um, So I think uh, these are possible, I guess, gateways to just think about creation by thinking about what it would mean uh, if it extends in a living way to other planets uh, as well. So bacterial uh, life. Um, how do we see uh, how, how do we go from there uh, to something that is more complex So all we have been talking about right up until now is how often we think we go from chemistry to something that is that, that we can recognize as life Does it matter if that continues on to animals, animal life? And should we expect to always see animal life if we see bacteria? I mean, here on Earth, we got this beautiful evolution from bacterial life up to to animal life. Uh, How should we think about that? And how should we think about those kind of probabilities? Is that sort of a one-to-one whenever you get bacteria, at some point later you get animals? Uh, we don't know, I think, is the, is the honest honest answer. Uh, here on Earth, we do know some about our history. And what that history is telling us is that for most of the time, uh, there were no animals around when there were bacteria around. Uh, we don't know exactly when life originated, but let's say it was closer to 4 billion years ago. Uh, well, animals really only shows up in the last half a billion That means that for the vast majority of the Earth's life, there were only bacteria around. And it's also not completely clear why we made this transition from bacteria into multicellular and eventually animal life. And therefore, but the fact that it took so long to get there suggests there's a rather contingent uh, kind of process and not one that may always happen, or maybe not even most of the time, happen on other planets. So really this is just to say that you can't assume that sort of Darwinian evolution will always and everywhere take you from simple life to more complex ones. This is uh, a big, I'd say unsolved question of exactly how that happens and how often you should expect that to happen. But here on Earth, we did get to animals, uh, said about half a billion years ago. Uh, we did eventually get to rather intelligent animals uh, does that mean that you should always expect to get then also rational animals? So something uh, something like us. So I guess it's to the final one. It seems like it's less of a bottleneck to get from animals to intelligent animals than to get from bacterial to animals. Uh, and here on Earth, we have had a lot of very intelligent animals uh, in the past. So this is somewhat of a family tree uh, of the kind of biological human-like uh, creatures that have walked out the Earth. And as you can tell, there are many more than us there. What is absolutely fascinating, though, even just from a purely scientific and historical point of view, is that of all of these extremely intelligent animals that walked the Earth, uh, only one started behaving like humans in the sense that there was only one of these that ended up starting showing the signs of culture that I think when we see it, we see that there's a human there. Uh, things like this, right? This, a human, a human made. And even our biological species, the Homo sapiens, did not start doing that immediately. There was hundreds of thousands of years between when we have the first evidence of our biological ancestor Two, when we see uh, the first signs of real human behavior. Now, I am definitely tempted uh, as a Catholic uh, to to, to see that transition, uh, that very stark, very rapid transition, uh, as when we went from being just formed out of the earth, you know, out of the clay of the earth, to having the spirit breathed into us. Uh, And I think this is one example of how, so science in this case, the so the biological explorations of our past can actually give us new images of how God creates, and also I mean I think one of the things that's showing here is that if you talk to atheist scientists, they have a very hard time explaining why around 50,000 years ago you get this revolutionary change in the culture uh, of of this human-like that become human, uh, human creatures. If you're gonna try to find these kind of rational extraterrestrials, uh, you're not gonna be able to do it generally by looking at atmospheres, uh, because we send out the same kind of molecules into the atmospheres as non-intelligent animals still. Uh, but if you have a, not just a rational animal around, but you have a, a technological a technologically advanced rational animal around, so we like to think of ourselves as belonging to that category. Well, then we do send out other things. We send out signals that are and on the electromagnetic spectrum that you could potentially pick up. And there are programs that is uh, gratefully paid by your taxpayer, like your your parents and your own taxpaying dollars, to look for signs of this. And SETI, uh, you have maybe heard of. there are actually telescopes looking for radio signals uh, from other intelligent civilizations. There have been other ideas that maybe you can look for industrial pollution on planets. Uh, I'm not sure that that's something you expect to be around for very long and also have a thriving civilization. There are some very exotic ideas that you can look for civilizations that are so advanced with solar power that they have basically built a structure around their sun to get the maximum amount of solar power. People are actually looking for this. Uh, This is all to say we have not found any of them. We don't know if these uh, rational extraterrestrial creatures exist. Uh, But I think one of the things that we can take some comfort in uh, is that if they do exist, uh, we know by faith that they must have been created particularly by God. You cannot create a rational animal by evolution. An intelligent animal, you can. But to actually have a rational soul, you need the inbreathing of, of God. And that means that if any such civilization exists, they exist there in a very particular way to work out some specific aspect of his plan for the universe. Um, So I guess that's, to me, the consoling part whenever I start thinking about what could such an encounter uh, or the existence of such extraterrestrials possibly mean. But I do think here is also where you can get some interesting sort of theological either mysteries or problems going. Uh, One is, I think, is just understanding how this affects the very special relationship that we have with our creator. And if having other extraterrestrials would in any way sort of affect that or make that less, uh, less special? Uh, and there's a common sort of atheist argument that goes along the lines of, well, we know there are extraterrestrials out there. We don't, but let's give them. We know there are extraterrestrials out there. Uh, and, so, and obviously, like, if they are out there populating the whole universe, it makes no sense Uh, like the Christian story just makes no sense with first God particularly creating us and then coming down uh, as Jesus of Nazareth to save us if we're just like one of like billions of civilizations out there. Now, I don't think that's a very good argument. I think you could make the same argument about that one human being here on earth is not very special because there are billions of other human beings here. And I think the one extraterrestrial creature that we do know exist uh, has been extremely helpful to humanity uh, over the centuries and millennia and bring some one or some ones who have brought us closer and enriched our relationship with God rather than pushed us away. So then I want to end where I think the real sort of maybe problem or mystery would lay if such extraterrestrial rational creatures existed. And that is with the incarnation. Like how do we understand the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity as Jesus of Nazareth, one of one of us, and his salvific mission if there are others, other rational creatures out there? And I think the first question you can ask is then, could there be more than one incarnation? Uh, is that something that we could consider as a possible reality? Um, it might surprise you, or not, uh, that, Uh, This is something that St. Thomas Aquinas thought about and addressed, uh, which uh, not particularly relating to extraterrestrials, but simply whether you could have had more than one incarnation uh, over human human history. And he said, absolutely, yes. It's not like the second person of the Trinity taken on human flesh and and is something that limited his his, uh, powers. Like he did not remove any powers by becoming incarnate. So of course he could do it again. Now, St. Thomas didn't believe that it actually happened historically. He thinks we knew through revelation that it happened once. But from sort of philosophical uh, point of view, there's nothing that inherently would limit God from doing this. And that means that we have sometimes like five options uh, available to us if we accept St. Thomas' conclusions. One is that if these extraterrestrial rational creatures exist, um, maybe they have not fallen, and therefore do not need the kind of rescue mission, the kind of extraordinary rescue mission uh, that we uh, were gifted with. Uh, This, uh, I think, um, it might be that there are tons of rational extraterrestrials out there looking towards Earth and being like, What did you do? Like, you could do whatever you wanted except for eating that one fruit and it took like two minutes. That's the real possibility. And C.S. Lewis has a famous space, you know, space books about about that exploring that there's not, the fall was not necessary in that way. Uh, At the same time, we know both uh, that we fell and that that some of the angels fell. And if there are many other civilizations out there, I think there is at least a possibility that some of them fell uh, as well. Uh, There is the possibility of, of fallenness without the rescue mission. God did not have to rescue us the way he did. Now, I don't think this number two is very likely considering just the ridiculous generosity that God showed towards us in pursuing us the way he did. It just doesn't seem like it's his sort of modus operandi to not try to rescue a creature he has made if with any possible almost means. So it brings us to three, they exist, they have fallen, and they're somehow saved through the incarnation uh, of the second person as Jesus of Nazareth. I think there's something attractive about this uh, in that uh, God becoming part of his creation, that seems like such a cosmic, that seems like it should be a cosmic event, and that there's like no limits to the kind of salvific power that, that that has. But there's also problems, which is that I think scripture points towards that it matters that we are of the same flesh as Jesus, and the specialties of the same kind uh, as Adam. And it would seem strange that we got that very special relationship with Jesus through being of the same kind, the same culture, the same history, while our hypothetical extraterrestrials did not. Uh, So that brings us to four, which is where the question of, could there be another incarnation comes into play? Uh, And here I would say there are also both something attractive and something potentially problematic. The attractive part being that they would get everything that we have received. And I think that is something like, intuitively that we would want them to have. But I think the problem there is a I I think this intuition many of us have, that God becoming man, whatever kind of rational creature that is, that seems more like the kind of big bang kind of event and less like something that happens over and over again. And that brings us to number five, that maybe there are theological reasons Uh, to expect that uh, extraterrestrials, uh, this rational extraterrestrials should not exist. And you definitely have Catholic philosophers and theologians who have taken that point of view. I'm hoping they're wrong. I'm hoping there are rational extraterrestrials out there and that we will have a chance to encounter them at some point. Uh, I just, either in this life or in the next, I just find that... Like having that whole different set of stories of interactions with God and their own, like getting to know God again through their eyes and their salvation uh, story, to me that would just be really exciting. So I will leave you on that hopeful note and take any questions.